Psalm 129. Number 10 of the 15 Psalms of Ascent. Those 15 Psalms that were dedicated to be sung by the pilgrims as they moved from their village up to the temple in those three basic feast days. So these would have been some of the most familiar of all the Psalms to the, to the Jews. Uh, you know and I know uh, that one of the best ways to memorize something is to put it to music, to sing. I remember Tim Tebow's mom came and spoke at uh, Collierville First Baptist when I was there on staff. My wife got to meet Tim's um, mother. What a beautiful, wonderful, godly woman. That, that whole family is just a great family. But she, in her testimony, part of her testimony was how she had taught, she called him Timmy. I know, you know, Timmy, uh, pretty big Timmy, if you know. But uh, she called him Timmy. She said, that's the way Timmy learned scripture. Uh, we, we sung a scripture in our home and he memorized it that way. Well, these Psalms were that sung that way and were memorized. So they would have been very familiar. Now, to, tonight, we're going to look at a psalm that is, uh, again, kind of familiar in form to one that we have already looked at, and we'll do a little comparison with that in, in just a moment. But I want to begin by just reading the psalm. Psalm 129. I'm reading, again, New American Standard. Many times they have persecuted me from my youth up. Let Israel now say, many times they have persecuted me from my youth up. Yet they have not prevailed against me. The, the plowers plowed upon my back. They lengthened their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut into the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like grass up on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, or the binder of sheaves his bosom. Nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Now, this psalm opens with a parallel statement. Many times they have persecuted me. Now notice the psalmist is speaking for the nation of Israel. And he repeats himself. Psalm 124, look at, look at how that psalm begins. Verse 1 and 2. We studied this a few weeks ago. Had it not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, had it not been the Lord who was on our side when men rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us alive. 
Now, notice the parallel between that, the way 129 begins. Many times they persecuted me from my youth up. Let Israel now say. See that, that uh, refrain? This psalm, as well as 124 and some others, were designed to be pitched or to, to be presented as a solo. The first line would be a solo, and then it would be like, you know, some you've, you've seen some song leaders say, now let's all join in and sing. And that's kind of the way it is on the second verse. On the first verse, he talks about the fact that many times they've been persecu they persecuted me from my youth up. Now, let's all sing that line. And so the whole congregation then joins in by singing that same thing. How the Lord has protected them from persecution ever since they've been in existence as a nation. Now, this psalm, then, is a psalm of victory. That's why we've named it that way. A psalm of the victory of the faith of the people of God over Zion's, or the, uh, over Zion, which is the term that means the people of God, over all of their enemies. And this psalm presents a supernatural resiliency of the people of God. And it also presents the fact that while the persecution of Israel slash the people of God, which includes you and me in the church and the body of Christ today, the persecution may be frequent, but it will not be fruitful. And so the bottom line to Psalm 129 is that we are to expect persecution as the people of God. So I want us to look at three things in this psalm, real general, but uh, it's kind of a skeleton to hang some thoughts on. First of all, I want us to look at the persecution of God's people, and that's verses 1 through 3. And then in verse 2b and verse 4, we're going to look at the protection of God's people. And then in verses 5 through 8, to, to finish up the psalm, we want to we, we look at the petition for God's people. How are we to pray for our persecutors? How are we to pray for our enemies? And in verses 5 through 8, we're told how to pray. Now, let me give you the history of Israel in one statement. This is the history of Israel summarized. Israel disobeys and God delivers. Israel sins and God saves. Israel rebels and God rescues. Israel does their part <laughs> by their disobedience and God does his part by rescuing them once they have disobeyed. Now, let me just say in the very beginning that persecution is not, doesn't come for just one reason. The people of God are persecuted for one of two reasons. Number one, they are persecuted because of sin, because of disobedience, rebellion against God. And God allows them to come under his discipline. 
But not all of the suffering of Israel, nor all the suffering of the church today, if we can contemporize it, comes as a result of discipline. Sometimes God uses suffering to further his purposes in his faith people, in his community of faith. God does some things through suffering and persecution that he can only do that way. There are some things that are accomplished through suffering that can never be accomplished through prosperity. And so God has a multifaceted approach to sanctifying his people. He will use whatever it takes and whatever is needed in order to move us down the road toward greater Christ-likeness. Now, as we think about uh, uh, persecution, I couldn't help but think about the first, or, or, uh, really, I guess I'd put it this way, the two most humbling experiences in my life on the mission field have to do with what this particular psalm is talking about, and that is the persecution of the people of God. I was preaching in Romania about 20 years ago. And there was a, an elderly gentleman seated on the front row, older than all the other pastors who were at that pastor's conference. And the pastor who was kind of emceeing, heading up the pastor's conference, asked me if I would step over and meet this gentleman who happened to be the father of this pastor. He was very frail. He's about this tall. He barely came to my waist. But when the pastor told me about him, he seemed to me to be seven foot tall. The man had spent seven years in a communist prison for the simple reason he would not refuse. He, he would not quit preaching the gospel. Now, when I met that man, then I had to come and step behind the pulpit and teach him. And to be honest with you, I felt like, oh my goodness, I need to be sitting down there and listening to a man like that. Highlighted the fact that during the communist regime, many of our brothers and sisters suffered terribly under communist Russia, uh, under China, and a lot of, uh, a lot of the churches, uh, their pastors were uh, either imprisoned and sometimes were killed. The second most humbling experience also happened overseas. And this only happened about maybe two years ago. I was preaching in India. And again, on the front row, there was this one pastor that was so devotional and demonstrative in his worship and in his love. It was like there was nobody there but him and God. And you could just sense the presence of God all over that man. And so I asked about him. And this is what I was told. And this had just happened recently. He was preaching in his church in India. And by the way, there's a tremendous increase in persecution of believers in India. Churches are being burned. Christians are being uh, beaten. Uh, the, new, the Prime Minister Modi in India has it as his goal 
to get all Christians out of the country of India because he feels like it's foreign invasion and he's, he's wanting to return India to a Hindu country. And my, my pastor friend that I met that day was in his church preaching when the militant Hindus came into his church during a worship service, stripped the pastor naked in front of his people and ran him out of the church. And I was looking at that man and I'm thinking, my soul, how, how little we know here in this country of suffering for Jesus Christ. To his people's credit, they gathered around their pastor and protected him and covered him. Now, that's the, that's the environment of Psalm 129. It's an environment where the people of God are facing persecution. And so what the psalmist is saying here is that from the very beginning of Israel's history, notice what he says here. Let's look at that first phrase. He says, they have persecuted me from my youth up. Now, what does he mean from my youth up? He doesn't say they persecuted me in my youth, but they persecuted me from my youth. Now, he's referring here to the persecution of the nation of Israel from the very beginning of its conception. You remember where that happened? You remember that um, Joseph went down to Egypt, and then he brought his aged father down with him and all of his brothers, about 70 people in all. And over a period of 430 years, that small group of 70 had grown into a, a congregation of one million plus. Many people say two million. And as a result of that, a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph became worried about the growth of this nation within their nation. So what had happened is Egypt became bothered about the fact that Israel had grown so large and had so much influence. And so they began to persecute the Israeli people. First of all, by having all the male babies killed. And during that time, you'll remember God did a miracle in preserving Moses, who was later going to lead them out. But that's where the persecution started. It started down in Egypt, and it had and it has never ceased since. If you go home tonight and you turn on uh, uh, a major news channel, you probably won't watch it an hour, but, but what something will come on about Egypt. Egypt, I, I mean about Israel. And sometimes it will, it will sound almost like you're reading one of the Psalms because Israel was born in suffering and they have continued in suffering. Once they got through the wilderness, or even in the wilderness, after they got away from Egypt, you think maybe that's it. And then all of a sudden, the Amalekites begin to persecute them. And then after they get into the promised land, they deal with all the, the Canaanites and Amorites and Perizzites and Termites and, you know, all those Ike boys. And, and they ran into, you know, every ism that should be a wasm, as old, uh, one of the old preachers used to say. 
They were everywhere, and they were persecuted by almost everybody. And then, if that were not enough, then came the time when they, they uh, of the judges, and the whole period of time of the judges was a period of intense persecution. Every Moab and all the other nations uh, took advantage of everything they could to keep the heat on the nation of Israel. And then came the kings. And during the period of the kings, the nations, like Egypt, remember Josiah, the good king? Remember how he was killed? He was killed by Necho, the pharaoh of Egypt, as Egypt invaded Israel. And then after that was over, came the Syrians and the ten tribes to Assyria. By the way, that's a method that's become popular again even today of transporting and deporting people. And then after that, the two tribes in the south were invaded by Babylon and taken captive for seven years. I'm just giving you a catalog of the history of Israel. You see why he said here, uh, many times we have been persecuted from my youth up. Let Israel say it again. This is like taking a yellow marker. Many times they have persecuted me from my youth up. Now, I, I want you to turn with me to the book of Hosea, just for a moment. Hosea, Joel, Amos. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Out of Egypt... I have brought my son. Out of Egypt, I have brought my son. Now, Hosea is writing a long, long time after this, this prophecy that Abraham made in Genesis chapter 22 and Genesis chapter 12 that the nation of Israel was eventually going to be taken captive and kept as prisoners of war. You see, that was pre predicted hundreds of years in the book of Genesis, even before it happened in the book of Exodus. So even before Egypt became, uh, or Israel became prisoners of war in Egypt, it had been prophesied in the book of Genesis. So the, the whole point is just this that the nation of Israel was destined, or I could say predestined, to suffer. They suffered then, and they continue to suffer now. Listen, listen to what Derek Kidner said about the suffering of God's people in Israel. I'm quoting him here. He says, Whereas, as most nations tend to look back in their nation to see what they have achieved, Israel, on the other hand, looks back to see what she has survived. Hear that? Most nations look back to see what they have achieved. Israel, on the other hand, looks back to see what she has survived. Now, he's pointing out the fact that they began being persecuted from the very beginning, and they've continued to be persecuted. But, but then he gives us this word of hope. Look what he says in the latter part of verse 2. In the latter part of verse 2, he gives us a, a measure of hope. He says, yet 
they have not prevailed against me. Yet, they have not prevailed against me. In Ephesians chapter 6, he talks about the armor of God and how we're to put on the armor of God to fight off the enemies. And, and then when he, when he gets to, the, uh, to uh, verses uh, uh, 13, he says, after you've put on the armor, after you've done everything you can do, he says, and having done all to stand. And so this psalm is, is really an Old Testament uh, challenge for the people of God not to throw in the towel when times get tough. He challenges us to stand and to stand firm, not in our own strength, but to stand firm in the strength of God. Now, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew just for a minute. Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. Look at verses 14 and 15. This is the flight to Egypt whenever Joseph and Mary are trying to protect the infant Jesus. It says in verse 13, Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there, until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. Now, let's continue. In verse 14, So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night, and she and left for Egypt. Now here's the, the focus. I want you to see verse 15. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet Hosea. It doesn't say Hosea, but I, I read that verse to you all ago. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. To fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now, I, I, I read that to show you the connection between the suffering of Israel in the Old Testament which was predicted even way back in Genesis, to the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. The prophet Hosea ties Jesus with the suffering connected with Egypt. Israel's suffering began in Egypt. Our Lord's suffering began in Egypt. And just as Israel suffered all throughout their history, even till this very day. So the Lord Jesus Christ was born to suffer. Now, I want to tie, tie it together even more as we continue reading the psalm. Notice what he says in verse 3. The plowers plowed upon my back. Now, that's speaking about the nation of Israel. That word plowers plowed, that's the word carved. It means they carve, they cut deeply. They plowed upon my back. They lengthened their furrows. Now, what's he speaking of there? They plowed upon my back. They took a plow and ran it up my backbone, deep, 
cutting it. What is he referring to here? What does that remind us of? Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 50. Isaiah chapter 50. Verse 6. Now Isaiah is obviously messianic. I like to refer to the book of Isaiah as the gospel according to Isaiah. He gives us such an incredible picture of the coming Messiah 700 years before Jesus was ever born. And this is no exception. Look what he says in Isaiah 50 verse 6. Talking about the coming Messiah. I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. For the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I am not disgraced. Now, hold, hold, go with me now, five chapters over, uh, two chapters over to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. He still uses the same figure of speech, the same picture. And he, and he says, verse 5, He, obviously he's referring to the Messiah, yet to come, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastising of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. You see what the psalmist is describing in Psalm 129 is a scourging. It's running the the plow up the back. It's, it's the picture of someone who's being scourged. And so the Bible is putting together a picture. And Psalm 129 is speaking of more than just the nation of Israel. The psalmist is also speaking of the Messiah that out of which, which will come out of Israel. So that you and I, who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, are born into the same expectation that every Jewish boy and girl was and is born in today. And that is the expectation that we will face persecution for our faith. Now I'm very thankful today that we have the measure of freedom that we have to meet here and worship like we are tonight without fear that somebody will come in. But, but our, our naivete has been destroyed, hasn't it? That's right. We can no longer assume anything. And people of faith, even in our country, are oftentimes the target of those who bring misery and suffering and death and persecution. And so we're not guaranteed that we won't have to suffer for our Lord. In fact, I think the scripture frames, frames itself in such a way that we are to expect it. Jesus said, blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you. Rejoice, he says, and be exceedingly 
glad. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Now that's a turn on things, isn't it? Uh, Philippians 1.29, for, for in your behalf, it is, it, is, it is given in your behalf not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. So the psalmist here is, is preparing us, just like he was preparing the nation of Israel. I think he's preparing us today. You see, that's all Israel had ever known. And that's the same today. All that Israel is, has ever known. And the only reason, listen to this, the only reason that persecution will finally end is when Israel's Messiah and our Savior finally comes back. In Revelation, it talks about the fact that the Lord Jesus is going to come back riding on a white horse. Remember that passage? And finally, all of the enemies will be destroyed. That's when the persecution will finally end. Remember, 144,000 Jews are going to recognize that the one they crucified really is the Messiah. And during that tribulation period, they're going to they're believe on him as their Messiah. And they're going to become 144,000 zealous evangelists. And there's going to be a mass turning of Jews to Jesus. And finally, the enemies of our Lord will be put down. And persecution will be no more. You know, sometimes we forget about that side of God. God is a God of love. He's a God of patience and kindness and goodness. But don't ever for one minute disregard the fact that he's a holy God. He's a God of wrath too. And we have to remember that he will have the last say. Well, let's go quickly to the protection. We've seen the persecution. You could spend a lot of time just highlighting how Israel has been a recipient of persecution all of their history. But let's go now to the protection. He says in, in verse uh, 2b, uh, he kind of introduces us uh, to this section on protection. Notice what he says in uh, uh, chapter 129, verse 2, the last part. He says, we've suffered persecution since we were youth. And then he adds, yet they have not prevailed against us. We've been persecuted. We've been uh, cast down, but not destroyed, Paul would say. Persecuted, but not destroyed. He, he's saying that God, God has not lost us out of his grip. The enemy may persecute, and the enemy may think that they've won a temporary victory, but the long-term prognosis is this. In the end, God's going to win. Amen? In the end, the victory is his. He says, yet they have not prevailed. And look down at verse 4. Here's the answer to the question, well, why? Why have they not prevailed? Verse 4 tells us, because the Lord is righteous, he has cut into the cords of the wicked. The word righteous just simply means God is right. And God does the right thing in the right way. And uh, there is no, uh, there, there are no uh, misjudgments with God. 
And he's saying because God is righteous, he's going to make sure that the righteous thing is accomplished in the end. And so the Lord is righteous. When it says he has cut into the cords of the wicked, I think he's referring to the fact that he's, he's cut loose the cords that bind one so that they are scourged, that binds them to the pole where they are scourged. God cut the cords. He released them from that. So he's showing here the protection of God's people. Now, why does God take this so personal whenever his people are persecuted? I want you to turn to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. And remember the story of Paul on the road to Damascus? Acts chapter 9 accounts that, or recounts that. And um, he says, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? What's that next word? Why are you persecuting me? I thought Paul was persecuting the Christians. Jesus said, if you touch one of my children, you touch me. If you touch one of my kids, you touch me. Now, most of us in this room, people could get by with quite a bit with us. We'd be patient. We'd be somewhat tolerant. But if you lay a hand on our why for our kids? All the wrath within us is going to rise. God is a jealous God. I don't mean jealous in a fickle sort of way. God loves his people. Enough to send his son to die for us. And if he loved us enough to send his son to die for us, mark it down, dear friend, he takes that relationship seriously and he has taken it upon himself to take care of his, enemy, of, of, of his children's enemies. And so when Paul said, uh, when Jesus asked Paul, why are you persecuting me? I probably surprised Paul. He thought he was doing God a good work. I mean, he thought he was really doing something, gaining some, some brownie points with God, you know. And God said, no, you got it all wrong. If you touch one of my children, you touch me. You touch me. Now, we come to the last thing, and that's the petition. How do we pray? <laughs> How do we pray for our enemies? That's uh, verses 5 through 8. You will find in the Psalms what are called imprecatory Psalms. That means when you're praying against your enemies. Uh, there was a preacher in Union County, Mississippi, who was famous for this. Uh, he's the only preacher I ever knew who practiced imprecatory prayers. <laughs> but he did. 
And, uh, well, by the way, anyway, uh, I won't go into more of that. But that's one tactic at church leadership. <laughs> I don't believe they teach that in seminary. Uh, but it worked in his case. But turn to Psalm 139 just, just for a minute. I want, I want to give you an example of an imprecatory psalm. If you think of Psalm 139, that, that's a wonderful psalm, you know. I mean, we, we cross-stitched some of 139 put it in our kids' rooms, you know. I mean, it just seems like a tame psalm, a good psalm. Well, I don't know if you want to cross-stitch this particular section or not. Uh, we'll read it and see. Uh, Psalm 139, uh, verse 19. Psalm 139, verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. That wouldn't look too good in cross-stitch. We find this one. You might want to cross-stitch this one. The very next verse. It's like he kind of takes a deep breath and goes right back to his devotional attitude. He says in the last two verses, Search me and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. But before he finishes, he prays an imprecatory prayer that God would take care of his enemies. Now, he prayed four things. Let's read that, and then I'm going to come back and just tell you what those four things are. Beginning in verse 5. May all who hate Zion... <coughs> Excuse me. Now Zion, if I can just say this real quickly, is a place where the people of God of all ages go together to worship. Remember I told you last week that Zion is twofold. There's a heavenly Zion, which is the throne of God, and there's an earthly Zion, which is the temple in Jerusalem. And, and that term Zion covers both, but it really is an overall umbrella reference to the place where God's people of all ages gather to worship. And he says, may all who hate Zion. Hey, can I ask you a question? Do you believe there's anybody that hates Zion? There are people today whose reason for existence as a nation is to destroy Zion. It's to destroy Israel. And it's in their charter as a nation that their goal is to kill every Jew they can. So nothing has changed. Nothing. Let them be like grass upon the housetop, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, or the binder the sheaves his bosom. Nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you, we bless you in the name of the Lord. Now, here's four things. If you look, break this down. Here's four things that he says to pray. This psalmist is praying for his enemy. Number one, he says, pray that they be defeated. Pray that they be defeated. See verse five? 
he says that they'll be put to shame and turned backward. Now, the, the term turned backward means a military defeat. When you turn and run, you've been defeated. And so he's praying for their enemies to be defeated. And so here's an example that it's not wrong. It's not the fact that God doesn't love them. Imprecatory prayers are evangelistic in nature, and you read that in number of the psalm. In other words, it is the imprecation, it is the discipline and wrath of God on these enemies that sometimes may be used to turn them to God. So, you know, the wrath of God is, is not just God wanting to scouse, except to receive the wrath of God. So, number one, cause, pray for them to be defeated. Be defeated. Number two, look at verse six. Verse six. Let them be like grass upon the housetop which withers before it grows up. <coughs> not, only are we, not only does he pray that they be defeated, he prays that they die. He says it's like grass on the roof. In the Holy Land, they had flat roofs. In those flat roofs, dust and dirt would blow, and there would be a layer of dust and dirt on that flat roof. Birds and wind would blow the seed around. And that seed would sometimes burst forth into life and grass would come up. So you'd have grass on the roof. But the problem was it could not go down because it ran into the concrete or whatever the house was made of. And when it couldn't go down, it would shoot right straight back up and in, the, in that hot sun, they would die. And so when he's praying this, he's praying that, that they won't make it, that they won't be able to continue. They'll be like grass. They may spring up momentarily, but they won't be, they won't be successful. They won't have extended life. They're, they'll die. He's basically praying that they will die, that they won't live, that they won't make it. And then here's the third thing. He prays that they'll disappear. <laughs> Look at verse 7. Verse 7, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, or the binder of sheaves his bosom. He, he's saying this, make them like the reaper who comes back from the harvest empty-handed. The harvest disappeared, so their hands remain empty. In other words, his prayer is that they won't be successful, that, that the harvest, the harvest in this case, would be God's people that he's out to destroy, that, that they won't be able to do that. Now here's the fourth thing. Defeated them, he prayed that they'd be defeated, that they would die, that they would disappear. And then the last one is verse 8. Nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. Let me ask you if you remember this. I, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, you'd get an A if you did. But in the sermon on, of sermons on Ruth, there was a particular moment in chapter 2 where Boaz comes to the field for the first time and he sees Ruth. But before he speaks to Ruth, Ruth 2 says he speaks to all of his employees. And he says, 
shalom or God bless you. He's, he's asking God's blessings upon his employees. And they respond to him and say, and God bless you. And it's held up as the epitome of proper labor relations. There's a great relationship between the owner of the farm and his workers. And it was an honorable thing to say, God bless you. Remember we talked last week about what that means? God bless you, meaning I pray you'll have prosperity and pray God will, 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 will do all he wants to do in you. Well, the prayer here is that those enemies will never hear that said to them. That they will be dishonored. That's the fourth word. Dishonored. Dishonored. They will be defeated. They'll die. They will disappear. And they'll be dishonored. Well, God, let me close with this. Y'all just need to listen a little faster. I'm finishing up. Here's the summary statement. God stands with his people. Take that to the bank. God stands with his people. Remember the story of Daniel? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Put them in the fiery furnace. They looked in there and said, there's Shadrach. Meshach and Abednego, but who's that fourth person standing in the fire? That's the person you'd expect to be there. Because our Lord said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.